sugar, or more specifically fructose. We know it's bad for us in its purified form, but why? What are the metabolic mechanisms by which high fructose causes chronic disease? And most importantly, how can we effectively combat this insidious scourge? What are the evidence-based natural treatments to undo the metabolic mayhem caused by fructose? Professor Robert Lustig is one of the leaders of the global anti-sugar movement to improve global health. He's the author of many academic works and of the popular book, Fat Chance, The Bitter Truth About Sugar, The Fat Chance Cookbook, and the soon to be released, The Agony of Ecstasy. Professor Lustig will be speaking at the 5th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held on the 20th to the 23rd of April, 2017. To register, please click on the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and joining me on the line today all the way from SoCal is Professor Robert Lustig. Robert is a professor of paediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology and member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist whose clinical research has focused on the regulation of energy balance by the central nervous system and the role of nutrition in metabolism. Now, his bio is way too long for me to go into, so rather than that, our practitioner listeners can look up Professor Lustig's profile at profiles.ucsf.edu forward slash robert.lustig. And I would like to warmly welcome Robert Lustig to FX Medicine. How are you, Robert? Thank you very much, Andrew. I just want to make one correction. I'm not greeting you from SoCal. I'm greeting you from NoCal. NoCal. We would never be associated with those people down there. So where does SoCal stop? <laughs> um, Is that just usually a... around Santa Barbara? Right. Okay. Gotcha. South from there. Right. I'll make sure. <laughs> make sure I adjust that. Whatever I... you do, um, if you come to NoCal, make sure you bring your sweatshirt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's cold. Uh, well, I, I can't wait to go up there because the last time I went there, uh, the the Big Sur was closed from a landslide. Yes, that's right. Yeah. It happens frequently. Mm. So I can't wait to, for you to come out to Australia in 2017 and speak at our, I think it's our fifth symposium, uh, because you've got a long and esteemed career, indeed controversial. But I think, firstly, we need to take our listeners through your professional and academic career because it is voluminous. Where well, do we start? I, I appreciate your saying that. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure how voluminous it is. But, uh, Why uh, enter medicine, I guess, first? What was your calling? Oh, hard to say. Um, you know, obviously, uh, these things come from uh, parents and grandparents and, you know, um, esteemed uh, friends uh, over all the years. Ultimately, I, I wanted to do something that was valuable to people, make the world a better place. Mm. You know, uh, uh, originally, I was going to be an astronomer. I ended up uh, settling on medicine uh, back in college yeah. uh, after I took an astronomy course and said, you know what? Better off the other way. <laughs> um, probably more to the point is why I ended up going into pediatrics. Yeah. And really, that was, I knew I wasn't going to be a surgeon because I'm a lefty. And if you're a lefty, you can't be a surgeon because you stand on the wrong side of a uh, patient's uh, uh, body while you're operating. But That's we're too point. good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lefty exactly. too. Oh, well, you know, if you're, uh, if uh, right handed people use the left side of their brains, mm. then lefties are the only people in their right minds. Mm. <laughs> anyway, uh, so pediatrics, because, um, I was on my first night on call uh, on adult medicine, and um, it was two in the morning, and uh, they wheeled in a patient who had just had a stroke, and they said, here, go work them up. And so I went into this uh, room of four um, uh, basically alcoholics who had been picked up off the street of Skid Row, 
And um, I couldn't make it through the door jam because the stench coming from that room was so severe that it was like a force field pushing me back. Wow. I thought to myself, what's the worst smell I have smelled on pediatrics? And it was a stool from a patient with cystic fibrosis. I said, right. this is worse. Yeah. And so I went into pediatrics. But then endocrinology. I mean, we're not talking about well, light yeah. things here. We're talking, you know, like Cushing's and... Endocrinology is a thinking specialty. Yeah. And, you know, so I have two left hands. I, you know, needed to do something which involved thinking. And endocrinology is like the ultimate cognitive specialty. Of course, we don't get paid for it, but it is... Uh, it is definitely interesting. My uh, ex-boss, uh, Walter Miller, who's one of the world's foremost endocrinologists and just won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Endocrine Society, says endocrinology is that aspect of medicine which is interesting. Now, I've got to ask then, like, why sugar? What twigged you to go, listen, there's something going on here? What was it? Because it was, I mean, you went against the grain. You have to understand that I had been in um, medicine for 28 years before the notion that sugar was a problem had even pervaded my consciousness. Right. It was quite a while. Uh, it's, I certainly did not come to this with an agenda. Uh, you know, I came completely through the back door. So I'm a neuroendocrinologist, so I'm interested in how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. And sort of the last frontier of this uh, field is obesity. And we didn't really understand how obesity worked until 1994, when the hormone leptin was discovered. Yep. And leptin tied the brain and the fat tissue together because um, leptin is the hormone secreted into the bloodstream and it's interpreted by the brain. And what the brain sees is energy sufficiency. So as your fat cells grow, your leptin levels go up and that tells your brain, you know, I've got enough energy on board to burn energy at a normal rate, feel good about it, and engage in expensive energy uh, prospects such as puberty and pregnancy. So leptin is tied to all of the things that I study as an endocrinologist. Well, at that same time, I was uh, faced with a stable full of patients who become obese due to the development of brain tumors. I was working at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and these children who had developed tumors in their hypothalamus, the area that controls hormones, uh, had either had surgery or radiation, and as soon as that occurred, they became massively obese. They would start gaining weight at the rate of, you know, like five pounds a month. Wow. Which was, you know, just insane. And so this form of obesity, which uh, uh, has a uh, biochemical equivalent in, in rats, is called hypothalamic obesity because of the hypothalamic damage. Yeah. And I was faced with an entire stable full of these kids, you know, what to do. Uh, so I went to the literature and it, uh, I noticed that, um, that there was this biochemical phenomenon in basic science known as the VMH lesions rat, where you basically take an electrode and you zap the hypothalamus in the rat, and they become massively obese. And it was known that the reason that that occurred in the rat was because of the hormone insulin. That something about that lesioning of the brain led to a very high release in insulin. So we knew that these kids had high insulins, but we didn't know if it was cause or effect. Right. We postulated back in 1995 well, maybe these kids are just like those VMH lesion rats. And if we gave them a medicine that worked at the pancreas and suppressed their ability to release insulin, in other words, if we could get their insulin down, maybe we could help these kids. So we did a pilot trial of eight children. We gave them all this medicine that uh, I uh, investigated called octreotide, which has lots of side effects, is very expensive and only given by injection, mm. so it's not for you to try at home. <laughs> but lo and behold, these kids, not only did they start losing weight, mm. but their behavior changed. One mother called me up. This was patient number one, so I didn't know what to expect. And a week into the drug therapy, she hadn't lost any weight yet. She hadn't had any time to lose any weight yet, but the mother called me up frantic. And she goes, 
Dr. Lustig, something's happening. And I thought, oh my God, I've got an adverse event. I'm going to have to close the study down, you know, go to jail. You know, I go, oh, what's the matter? And she says, well, before we would go to Taco Bell and she would eat five tacos and an enchirito and she'd still be hungry. We just went to Taco Bell and she ate two tacos and she was full. And she just vacuumed the house. Wow. This was very strange. In fact, all the kids that we treated with this medication started exercising spontaneously. We didn't tell them to do it. They just did it. One kid started lift, uh, 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 became a competitive swimmer. Two mm. kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, you know, running around collecting all the basketballs. I mean, these were kids who sat on the couch, ate tortilla chips, and slept. And now... They seem to have the energy to burn. So what this demonstrated to us very clearly was that it was the biochemistry that was driving the behavior. Because when I influenced the biochemistry with this medicine, I influenced their behavior. And so this was very interesting. We ended up doing it again as a double-blind trial. Same thing happened. And then we said, well, gee, could it be that there are adults without brain tumors who have the same insulin problem. And if we gave them this same medicine, might they end up responding the same way? Right. Now, we didn't know what these people looked like. You know, we didn't have any sort of, you know, roadmap to go by. So yeah. we took all comers and we did a study where we, again, a pilot trial where we took 44 obese adults who did not have brain tumors, you know, just 44 garden variety obese people. And we gave them the drug for six months. And what was fascinating was that eight, count them, eight of the 44, so 18% of the total, yep. did exactly what the kids did. They lost weight on a lot, and they started exercising spontaneously because they felt better. Now, interestingly, the other 36 did not. But, but you could look for a cause there. You could look for a reason. That's right. That's right. And what we found was that these eight who responded, their insulin profile was exactly the same as the kids with the brain tumors. The others were, they had high insulins, but because of a phenomenon called insulin resistance. Right. So we found this phenomenon, which we called insulin hypersecretion, and it has to do with the nerve that goes from the brain to the pancreas called the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And the vagus nerve is basically an overdrive in these kids and in these adults. And they're causing the beta cells, which make insulin, to be twitchy. That is, that they fire and explode their insulin into the bloodstream at almost the slightest provocation. Whereas the other patients, they had insulin resistance, which is what's more commonly noted mm. in obese people. Yeah. And they're the ones who go on to develop heart disease and you know fatty liver disease and uh, diabetes. So what we had done was we had parsed a specific phenomenon out of general obesity, proving that not all obesity is the same mm. and that there are different causes for obesity in different people. And that if you look a priori for the cause and you can ultimately identify it, you can target the therapy to that cause and ultimately treat the patient properly. Now this, and that the biochemistry precedes the behavior. Yeah. So this is somewhere where I think obesity treatment needs to go because we lump them into obese patients. There you go. Absolutely. They're all the same. And we well, wonder why they just, we have such poor record in, in you know, re, re weight gain after, you know, two to five years. Um, exactly right. Because everyone thinks that all obesity is the same. Yeah. Well, you eat too much and you exercise too little. Well, the answer, the question is, why mm. do you eat too much and why do you exercise too little? And what changed to allow this to happen? And why is it that if you eat too much and you exercise too little, why why weren't you obese before? Now you're obese now. You know, something had to have altered. Yeah. And if you're smart enough and you look for the uh, the cause, you can um, often often, not always, but often find the cause. And so what we do in our clinic here at UC San Francisco is we do personalized obesity medicine. Right. We parse instead of lump. Yeah. We determine 
what is it that's actually driving the problem as opposed to just saying, well, you're obese, too bad. And, you know, it's your, it's your fault. Mm. And when we actually target the therapy to the pathology, our patients respond. And uh, it's probably the most heartening aspect of my work. So there's about 20 questions springing from the last couple of sentences. <laughs> there's, there's a few burning questions in my mind, seeing as we're talking about biochemistry. Can I ask you first a, a, a chemical that interests me, and that was alpha-melanocyte stimulating hormone, alpha-MSH. Yes. MSH. Mm -hmm. yes. Why melanocyte? Why has that got oh. to do with weight? Well, um, it doesn't really. Um, so alpha-melanocyte stimulating hormone is a breakdown product of a larger protein in the brain called pro-opio-melanocort. And it does stimulate melanocytes, that's true, but it's not what stimulates melanocytes in your skin because it's a different receptor. Gotcha. So the, uh, the, the hormone that stimulates melanocytes in the skin acts on the melanic cortin 2 receptor, whereas, I'm uh, sorry, melanocortin, I take that back, it's melanocortin 1 receptor in the right. skin. Yeah. The one that stimulates the adrenal gland is the melanocortin 2 receptor, and the melanocortin 4 receptor is the one that's in the brain. And so the uh, substance in the brain never sees your skin. Got yeah, but that always it, interested so me. It's basically, right. Well, it, it's it's what the body does is it repurposes mm. certain things for other purposes. Mm. So you, it's not it's not a big deal. No, but you mentioned thing. also POM there. What's the correct um, acronym for it? Uh, POMC, so pro-opio-melanocortin. So this is a 191 amino acid mega protein that gets um, cleaved in the brain and also in the pituitary to make different peptides that are necessary to do different functions. So one of the pieces is beta endorphin, which is our you know endogenous morphine that works in our brain to suppress pain. One of them is ACTH, which goes to your adrenal glands to stimulate the adrenals to produce cortisol. And one of them happens to be alpha-melanocyte stimulating hormone, which helps control energy balance at the level of the brain. Right. Well, I definitely can't wait to for you to come and speak to us and, and relearn. Because look, one I remember learning about this myself um, yeah, from the Tima books. I'll give a shout out to them, mm -hmm. the the Tima Flexi books. And I was just in awe about this because everybody was talking about leptin at the time. You know, right. and, well, and leptin you know, resistance. Is very interesting. But you know, the fact is, what we've learned is that people who are obese have relatively high leptin mm. levels. Not low leptin levels. But they've levels. got a resistance. You know, everybody was thinking, well, they'd be, you know, leptin levels would be low. Turns out they're high. Yeah. But they're not seeing the leptin. They're not transducing the leptin signal. They have what we call leptin resistance. And what we determined from these studies in, you know, in these adults was that when we got their insulin down, these people lost weight. But mm. again, they started exercising spontaneously and this was really the, the key and the crux to the whole thing. We measured their resting energy expenditure using a metabolic cart. So, you know, they would breathe in oxygen, they would breathe out carbon dioxide. And from that, you can actually measure how fast, in terms of calories per day, people are burning energy. And it turned out that these eight people who responded to the drug, their energy expenditure at baseline at rest was the lowest of all of the 44 people we studied. Right. And when we gave them the medicine, their energy expenditure went up. Yeah. Now, if you're losing weight, your brain is supposed to see starvation. Your energy expenditure goes down. And that's one of the reasons why people slow their weight loss as they start losing weight is because right. their brain senses that they're in starvation mode yep. because their leptin levels have declined. And so their hypothalamus basically says, well, I have to turn, ratchet down how fast I'm burning, mm. the same way your thermostat would work. And well, that's just a survival people, mechanism, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a total survival. But these people, we gave them this drug. They lost 12.6 kilos in 24 weeks, a pound a week, yeah. right? and their energy expenditure went up. Now, how do you explain that? 
Yeah, so, all right, yeah. <laughs> another 20. <laughs> is that their leptin is now working. Okay, so... so what, they weren't working before, but now they're working. Yeah. And that means that their leptin resistance went away. They now became leptin sensitive. Now, I and have to... the reason that... Sorry. Sorry, well, I just have to ask about that. Is is it as simple as saying that that leptin resistance was driven by inflammation, or is there just a whole host well, of other things no, going on? the leptin resistance was being driven by the insulin. So when we got their insulin down with the medicine, their leptin sensitivity came back. Right. And we then pro- proved that it's the insulin that's blocking the leptin from working. Gotcha. At the level of the brain. Right. And other people, you know, using basic science models have since shown that. So insulin blocks leptin. Insulin is an endogenous leptin antagonist. So the question is, like, why would God do that to us? Why does nature make insulin block leptin? And the answer is because there are two times in your life when your leptin should not work. There's a two times when you actually have to gain weight so, for survival of the species. Infants and Those puberty? Puberty and pregnancy. Oh, and pregnancy, right. If you don't gain weight, you know, species dies out. Yeah. So if your leptin worked right all the time, you could never gain the weight species would die out. Mm. So doesn't it make sense that the same hormone that causes the weight gain, uh, delivers the energy to the fat cells, should be the same hormone that would block the thermostat from ratcheting down at the level of the brain. So it makes perfect sense that insulin should end up doing both. So insulin is an endogenous leptin antagonist. And when you understand that, you understand why, number one, obesity exists, because now everyone's hyperinsulinemic. And number two, you also understand why it's so hard for people to lose weight, because they lose weight as soon as they start trying to lose weight, as soon as they reduce their total energy intake, as soon as they start dieting, their leptin levels go down before their weight does. Mm. So all the brain sees is now they're leptin deficient on top of being leptin resistant. So... That's the recidivism of obesity. And when you understand that, you understand that the, the insulin has to go down first. Mm. Then patients can be treated. And that's what we do in our clinic. But, it, but as you say, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So this sort of answers the... Not only does it answer the plateau of weight loss, but it also answers the sort of um, varying results we get from the chosen diet, if you like, the fat of the day. Um, exactly. It, you know... And it also explains why the low-fat diet didn't work. Mm. Okay? The low-fat diet does not work. Okay? And now the USDA, who promoted the low-fat diet for the last 40 years, has finally taken it back. Yeah, yeah. Because the data is just incontrovertible. Well, in fact, the low-fat diet is a high-carb diet, and in particular, a high-sugar diet. Sugar diet, yeah. Because when you take the fat out of the food, the food tastes like cardboard. And so you have to put something back in to make the food palatable. And what was it? It's sugar. Mm. Like salad dressing. Low-fat salad dressing, take a look at the label. Half the fat, double the sugar. Yeah. So, so it turned out that that's what made the insulin go up. Remember I said everyone's hyperinsulinemic? Yep. It's the carbs. Mm. And it, in particular, the sugar. So carbs and sugar, turns out, act through two different mechanisms. So carbs are glucose, and glucose causes mm. insulin release. Sugar is glucose and fructose, fructose being the sweet molecule in sugar, and the reason we like it so much, because it's also addictive. Mm. And it turns out that fructose is metabolized in the liver to fat. And so that fat gunks up the workings of the liver, causes insulin resistance, and tells your pancreas you have to make more. And so it was the realization that the liver insulin resistance mattered more. And the fact that we now have a pandemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, even in children, that drew me to sugar. Mm. And this occurred about a decade ago, when I finally pieced together the similarity in metabolism and also in terms of what the brain does between sugar and alcohol. 
And this is why children now get the diseases of alcohol, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease, yeah. without the alcohol. Yeah. Because the fructose molecule is being metabolized in the liver just like alcohol. Yeah. And what? it was that realization that led me to the last 10 years of my career. What really interests me is uh, looking back at the NHANES, um, one and two, the increasing prevalence of obesity. And it was sort of tied inexorably with the, it was almost like an agribusiness rescue by the US Senate um, to support the farmers. Um, well, but turning towards, yeah, corn and sugar. That's right. So in the 1960s and 1970s, there was this big fight going on between the people who thought fat was the bad guy and the people who thought sugar was the bad guy. Now, on the sugar is the bad guy side was the British physiologist, nutritionist, and ultimately physician, John Yudkin. And he was the one who said sugar was the problem. And on the other side, we had this guy, Ansel Keys. Yeah. And he was the one who said saturated fat was the problem. Now, both of them said what they said based on correlational studies. We now know that correlation is not causation. So to be honest with you, knowing what we know today, both of them were wrong because both of them shouldn't have said anything. But back then, we didn't have those kinds of time-lapse studies where we could infer causation. We only had correlation. Keyes won the fight in part because of three scientific discoveries of the 1970s. The first was the um, molecule called LDL, low-density lipoprotein. Yeah. And we knew about children and young adults who died of heart attacks at you know 18 years of age, and they ended up having a disease called familial hypercholesterolemia, and they had a defect in their LDL receptor. So they couldn't clear their LDL. They had LDL levels in the thousands, and they would die of heart attacks. And this is what won Brown and Goldstein the Nobel Prize back in 1973. Mm -hmm. The second piece of information was that dietary fat raises your LDL. And that is true. Dietary fat definitely raises your LDL. And then the third piece of information was that LDL levels in large populations correlated with heart disease. So the assumption was if dietary fat raises your LDL, LDL correlates with heart disease, get rid of the dietary fat, and we LDL, LDL levels will go down, yeah. and so heart, disease heart disease will go away. Yeah. And Yudkin was thrown under the bus. He's won the argument. We also now know that part of the reason people accepted that was because there were two scientists at professors at the Harvard School of Public Health who had written a review article, two review articles, back in 1967 in the New England Journal of Medicine, which exonerated sugar as being a cause of heart disease and placed the blame squarely on saturated fat. We now know, based on the work of my colleagues at UCSF, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz, that those two review articles in the New England Journal in 1967 were full. Yep. They, were, they were put up jobs. They were paid off. Now, this has been recently exposed, yeah, by looking at the yes, sugar month. industries. That's right. Is that right? Yeah. The sugar industry had basically propagandized this issue mm. to exonerate their product. Yeah. So we now know that the sugar industry had its thumb on the scale of this tenuous balance from the get-go. Nonetheless, Yudkin lost the argument, he's won, and we all went low-fat. And when we went low-fat, we also went high-sugar. Yeah, that's... The because the food would have tasted like crap. And in the process of going high-carb and high-sugar, which is what we did back in, you know, 1980, we have now had this pandemic of obesity diabetes, heart disease, which we didn't get rid of, and now a new disease, fatty liver disease, which we didn't have before. And the rise of this new phenomenon, which now is called metabolic syndrome. Yeah. And my job is to, <clears throat> number one, 
lay out the process by which metabolic syndrome occurs, and number two, reverse it, <clears throat> which is what we do every single day. Now, I have to ask, you know, sugar, probably the most widely used drug in the world, but Indeed. sugar isn't one thing. It's like an apple. Which sugar? Surely it isn't all bad, and what's the relevant dose? Because even fruit has sugar in it, right? Well, of course, but fruit also has fiber, and the fiber is what mitigates the negative aspects of fruit. So there's a big difference between fruit and fruit juice, mm. and the difference is the fiber. So here's the way to think about it. Which would you rather have? An apple, which has, say, 30 calories and boatloads of fiber, or an 8-ounce glass of apple juice, which has 120 calories and no fiber. Mm. What do you think is going to do more damage to your liver? Mm. So, here's the issue. You consume sugar, but if you consume it with its inherent fiber, that is, fruit, the soluble and insoluble fiber that's within that apple or orange or you know, whatever fruit you consume yep. will form a barrier, a secondary barrier on the inside of your duodenum, inside your intestine. It's a whitish gel, and you can actually see it on electron microscopy. And it acts as a secondary barrier, mm. keeping a significant portion, anywhere from 25 to 30% of the nutrients, of the carbohydrate, of those simple monosaccharides, you know, glucose and fructose, from even being absorbed in the duodenum. And that protects your liver. In addition, because they, you don't absorb them in the duodenum, they go further down to the jejunum. And what's in the jejunum that's not in the duodenum? Bacteria. There's virtually no bacteria in the duodenum because the pH just changed mm, from mm, the stomach. Mm. You have to wait for the um, pancreatic juices that come in via the sphincter of Odi into the, <clears throat> into the duodenum to mix with everything before the pH will change to allow for bacterial growth. So the jejunum has all these bacteria in it. Now, each of us is 10 trillion cells, but we have 100 trillion bacteria in our intestine. They outnumber us 10 to 1. Each of us is really a big bag of bacteria with legs. Mm. And those bacteria matter because the bad bacteria tend to make proteins called cytokines, which cause disease. And they have to be buffered by what seem to be fragile bacteria, which need more energy in order to proliferate. That what we call bacterial or microbial diversity, yeah. this concept of the intestinal microbiome. Well, if you're absorbing all of your nutrients up in your duodenum because there's no fiber in your diet, what are the bacteria in your jejunum supposed to eat? Yeah. So what happens is the bacteria that are more hardy and tend to be more um, disease-causing, will proliferate. The other bacteria, which you know are more fragile, will tend to dwindle. This is the whole concept by which you know probiotics are being utilized. Mm. The problem is, if you don't fix the environment, you expect those probiotics to last? No. They're, so what well, you really need is not probiotics, but prebiotics. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. You need, to the, you need to change the environment in the intestine to allow for the good bacteria to grow. And the single most important prebiotic fiber, by far and away. Mm. So if you eat your food with fiber, which is called real food, you're going to reduce your sugar consumption. You're going to increase your fiber consumption. You're going to reduce your absorption of nutrients that can potentially overload your liver. And you're going to increase your microbial diversity, thereby promoting metabolic health. It's called real food. Yeah, you, you just answered my next frame of questioning, and <laughs> that was basically <laughs> just just look at the the argument, if you like, between you know which one out the sugar or, or the fat, and um, right. you know both of those have issues, and then you think in a simplistic view, one would say, okay, well let's decrease both of those potential baddies. So what's left in our diet? Well, that would normally most people would think, oh, protein. So then you've got high protein, but if you have too much protein without other stuff, that will also change. <laughs> so so the, the missing ingredient there is fiber. 
and that's the thing that that's can right. help us fill us up and yeah exactly mm. and, exactly and, and that, that, this that, is actually this is actually why i am not a fan of glycemic index right because glycemic index ignores the issue of fiber it also ignores the issue of fructose so ah. the way to explain what's really good is not glycemic index. I know glycemic index is a big deal down in Australia. It was. And I'm here to tell you that glycemic index is a sham. It's a canard. What we should be talking about is something called glycemic load. Load, yeah. Now, what's the difference between glycemic index and glycemic load? The answer, everything. So a perfect example of how this works. Let's take carrots. So carrots, they're good for you. Right, mm. but they're evil if you look on the glycemic index load. So uh, that's glycemic right. index. So glyce- that's right. So if you consume fifty grams of carbohydrate in carrots, your blood sugar will go pretty high. Mm. So it has a high glycemic index. However, how many carrots do you have to eat to get fifty grams of carbohydrate in carrots? Mm. The answer is you have to eat seven hundred grams of carrots. It, it's kind, to me, carrots. yeah. It's kind of it, it's exactly like apples versus apple juice. Try and get the Absolutely. same caloric intake from eating apples as a as a glass of apple juice. Absolutely. Yeah. So nobody eats seven hundred grams of carrots. So every food is a low glycemic load food mm. if it comes with its inherent fiber. Yeah. So if you eat real food, you're eating a low glycemic load diet. Whereas if you're eating processed food, because there's no fiber, you're eating a high glycemic load diet. Mm. The other problem with glycemic index is the molecule fructose itself. Now, glycemic index is how high does your blood glucose level rise? Fructose is not glucose. So when you consume a fructose load, it doesn't raise your blood glucose. It raises your blood fructose, which is seven times worse. Right. Because it binds to proteins seven times faster, causes seven times the denaturation of those proteins, and releases seven times the number of oxygen radicals, oxidative stress, in order to damage cells and cause cell death and dysfunction. Right. And it's not captured in the concept of glycemic index because it raises your fructose level, not your glucose level. So glycemic index is in the... In, in French, brigitte. It is garbage. Right. It is to be ignored. Right. And I cannot stress that more than for the Australian audience that has been led astray over the past two decades. Oh, and, and more. I have to ask here, something that's just entered my mind is when you're measuring, if you're looking at diabetics for instance, type 1 diabetics, and they're looking yep. at um, you know, insulin control and they're, looking at, they're measuring that with HbA1c um, right. for a, a three-month sort of average of glycemic control. Yep. How does fructose um, affect that measurement? Well, that's exactly right. It doesn't affect that measurement because hemoglobin A1c does not measure fructose binding to the hemoglobin molecule right. because hemoglobin A1c only measures the glycation, the addition of a glucose to position one. Right. That is why it's called hemoglobin A1c yeah. because it's at position one on the hemoglobin A molecule. Right. Turns out fructose, because of its stereochemistry, doesn't bind there, doesn't bind to position one. It binds at positions 66 and 110. Right. So you don't see it in your hemoglobin A1C. You would see it in your hemoglobin A66, 110, but no one measures that. No, so the, we actually have data that show that this um, fructosylation of proteins is part of the aging reaction that drives diabetics in particular, who consume fructose because they're told to, because it doesn't raise their serum. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't understand this. When it's biochemistry and it's there and it's known, I don't get the blinkers. I don't get this. I don't understand why well, it's not being raised in normal diabetic and endocrinological circles in all countries. Well, I'll tell you why. Really easy. One word money. Right. Think about this. 
We have, in America, the American Diabetes Association. In the UK, you have Diabetes UK. I, I think that that also works for um, Australia yeah. as well. Yep, Diabetes Australia. The rest, the rest of the world has the International Diabetes Federation. Now, there's a big difference between the American Diabetes Association and Diabetes UK, who are on one side, and the International Diabetes Federation on the other. Because the International Diabetes Federation member countries are so poor, they can't even afford the refrigerator to keep the insulin in. Right. They have to be for prevention. Prevention is essential. And so the IDF has lobbied the G20 to, uh, to enact soda taxes around the world to stem the tide of diabetes type 2 around the world. Hmm. Whereas the American Diabetes Association and Diabetes UK have actually come out and said that fructose plays no role in, uh, in uh, uh, the pathogenesis of diabetes. And in fact, it's a good thing to consume. What? Why? Because of money. Because Diabetes UK and the American Diabetes Association are funded by Big Pharma. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I have to ask then, for our listeners, our practitioner listeners out there, is the test available to be able to test for fructose effect on no. hemoglobin? No. It's more of a research tool. It's not immediately available. It'll be a research tool, and only one or two labs around the world do it. Right. There's a Japanese lab that does it, and uh, uh, my colleagues uh, can do it, although we're not set up for it. Gotcha. So how do, do we therefore look at surrogate measures of that? Yes. Well, so there are many things you can do in order to answer this question. And I think, based on our work, that the single two best surrogate measures, proxy measures, are ALT, alanine aminotransferase, which is a marker for liver fat, and uric acid, which is a proxy for sugar consumption. Right. Because when, you, uh, when fructose enters the liver cell, it has to be phosphorylated. Yep. And since, most, since 100% of the fructose load ends up in the liver, so when you consume, a, say, a soda, uh, you're going to get a big fructose load so you're going to get a lot of fructose phosphorylation, which means a lot of ATP is going to be turned into ADP because the phosphate has to be donated. Yep. And there's a scavenger mechanism in the liver known as adenosine deaminase 1, which then takes those ADPs and pulls the phosphates off to go to AMP, adenosine monophosphate, then to IMP, which is inositol monophosphate, and finally to the waste product uric acid, which is then released from the liver and then goes out in the urine. And if you put too much in, uh, you know, uh, out in the blood, you will get gout. Yeah, yeah. And you can also get uric acid stones. And that explains so, to me why uric acid is a separate risk factor, at least in integrative circles, for um, cardiovascular disease as well. Cause it's absolutely. Tied in with... It's well, well documented uh, for type 2 diabetes as well, mm. because uric acid is a marker for metabolic syndrome. Right. And the thing is that uric acid is also a marker for sugar consumption. Yep. So this all is very internally consistent. Right. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go on to a different sort of thing here. It's all tied in with fructose consumption and, and our um, insulin resistance sort of life, lifestyle. Uh, yep. Most prackies are aware of insulin resistance, syndrome X. They're also aware of the burgeoning prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD. What's the link with fructose? And can you take us through what you term the two-hit theory of NAFLD I read in your paper, your nature? Yes, um, absolutely. So the b bottom line is that because fructose is metabolized in the liver only, because only the liver has the GLUT5 transporter, because fructose is not regulated by insulin and does not regulate insulin. And because fructose does not go to glycogen, it goes straight down to the mitochondria. And then the mitochondria become overwhelmed by the energy bolus because it becomes, you know, fructose goes to acetyl-CoA and the acetyl-CoA, you know, the, the mitochondria can only cycle 
you know, at a certain rate. Yep. And if you go over that rate, then what happens is the mitochondria have no choice but to liberate the citrate that was formed. It goes out via a process called the citrate shuttle. It's now in the cytosol. And three enzymes in the cytosol act on it. Those three enzymes are ATP citrate lyase, acetyl-CoA carboxylase 1, and fatty acid synthase. Those three enzymes together constitute what we call de novo lipogenesis, right. new fat making. Fat, yep. And so they take energy that the mitochondria should have burned but couldn't and turns it into fat. And then that fat has one of two fates. It will either precipitate in the liver as a lipid droplet. Now you've got fatty liver disease, which then causes insulin resistance, causes hyperinsulinemia, and causes ultimately type 2 diabetes. Or it will be packaged and it will be released from the liver. And now you've increased your VLDL, very low density lipoprotein, which you measure as your serum triglyceride. And that then can serve as a substrate for atherosclerosis. Yep. So you can pick your poison. Yeah. Basically, get type 2 diabetes, or you can get heart disease, or both. Or both. <laughs> pick, pick when. <laughs> Big win, yeah. Um, so the bottom line is, don't let that happen. And the easiest way to not let that happen is reduce the substrate Yeah. at the level of the liver. Well, there are four foodstuffs that are metabolized in this fashion. That is, they don't stimulate insulin, they're metabolized by the liver only, and they don't go to glycogen. Those four are trans fats, but we know that, and they're mm. coming out of our uh, diet. Yep. Branched-chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, and valine, they are the stuff that's in protein powder yep. that bodybuilders use to pump iron. But if you're not pumping iron, then eating extra branched-chain amino acids only end up as liver fat. Yep. Alcohol, but kids don't drink alcohol. And finally, breakfast. Yeah. Those four foodstuffs are all independently related to the development of metabolic syndrome. And by far and away, sugar being the worst of the bunch because everyone is exposed. Mm. Now, I have to play the devil's advocate here on a couple of things. So I guess the first one is high fructose corn syrup isn't prevalent in Australian foods. Tell me, right. what, tell me why we've still got the issue of obesity. Because you have sucrose. <laughs> because you have table sugar. Yeah. Um, you're right. The entire Pacific Rim, other than Japan, doesn't have high fructose corn syrup. Korea doesn't have high fructose corn syrup. Australia doesn't have high fructose corn syrup. China doesn't have high fructose corn syrup. And you all have the exact same diseases as we do because and Malaysia doesn't have high fructose corn syrup because you have sucrose. You yeah. have table sugar. You grow it there in Australia, in Queensland. Yep. And your and your parliamentary um, your MP, uh, um, I think his name is Boswell, um, you know, uh, read into the um, uh, parliamentary record that I was a, uh, a menace to Australian society. I would like to correct that. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Uh, I I I, uh, I would love to debate Mr. Boswell. Yeah, I will take him. Oh, well, he's a politician. Uh, in, <laughs> in short order, it's all right. Most most Australians don't trust politicians. <laughs> well, we don't trust our politicians either. <laughs> no. Wonder why? Oh, I wasn't going to open up that one. <laughs> Not at this stage. <laughs> so I have anyway. to ask about another. I know I'm sort of looping back to these biochemical entities, but I need to ask one which I'm totally ignorant. Ignorant about, and that was one that you mentioned in a couple of papers of yours. Fatuin A, uh, so, t so so two and three, and one one and three. So these are mitochondrial uh, uh, transcription factors that appear to be related to longevity, and uh, people who have variants of sirtuin one and three seem to uh, uh, have uh, reduced liver capacity to metabolize. So a little sugar makes a lot of liver fat. And so it's particularly worrisome in people who might have problems in terms of liver fat metabolism. Mm. So then I guess coming back to the diet, the treatment sort of thing, if you're looking at there's no one approach to obesity, yes. 
what sort of testing do you need to be doing? What sort of testing should practitioners be doing to say right. or to well, categorize so, which sort of obese patient they have in front of them? Right. So I'll, I'll give you the script that we use in my clinic. Yeah. Uh, and that hopefully will, you know, provide some guidance. So fat kit comes in, take a look at the kit, almost always, not always, but almost always, they have acanthosis nigricans, that ridging around the back of the neck that is indicative of insulin resistance. And we point to the mother, you know, have the mother come over and look and say, see this? Yeah. Okay. This is not dirt. You know, this does not wash off. No. This is a sign of high insulin. So we haven't even drawn you know, blood on your kid, and we already know your kid has high insulin. So every time your kid eats, insulin shunts a portion of that to fat, which is why they keep gaining weight. As long as the insulin is high, we will not be able to turn this around. We have to get the insulin down. Right. That insulin reduction is the directive, irrespective of calories. If we can get the insulin down, your kid wins. If we don't get it down, your kid loses. Yeah. And in that way, we, number one, medicalize and we partner with them to make it clear that they have to do something themselves. So we say, all right, how do you get insulin down? Well, there are three ways, diet, exercise, medicine. We never start with medicine, so that leaves us with diet and exercise. So obviously exercise is important. It helps burn energy. It makes you insulin sensitive. It increases muscle and it grows mitochondria and thereby increasing burning, therefore more insulin sensitivity. So more exercise, more better. So we, you know, impress upon them the need for their child to engage in some meaningful form of physical activity because of their insulin, not because of their weight. Then we say, all right, now we're at diet. How do you get insulin down with diet? Well, don't let it go up. So what makes insulin go up? Two things. Refined carbohydrate, bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, and sugar. Now, what color are those five things? White. Right. Now, when wheat comes out of the ground, what color is it? It's brown. But when you turn it into bread, what color is it? Mm, white. white. Yeah. Yeah. When rice is grown in the rice paddy, what color is it? It's brown. But when you eat it at a Chinese restaurant, what color is it? It's white. Where'd the brown go? What was the brown? Well, the brown was the fiber. But it was milled off at the mill or polished. And that fiber, that whole grain, that brown rice was actually important because it supplied the fiber that makes your intestine do its job. So we tell everyone, you have to eat your carbohydrate with fiber. So you don't have to eat a low-carb diet. You have to eat a safe-carb diet. Right. You have to eat brown food. So not bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, but beans, lentils, nuts, quinoa, farro, brown rice, other legumes, because they contain fiber. Fiber is either brown or green. So brown and green food, that works. That supplies fiber to your intestine so that the intestinal bacteria can do their job. And then finally, sugar. And so basically we say, your kid is, you know, needs to eat a low sugar, high fiber diet. That's called real food. Yeah. But right now your kid is eating a high sugar, low fiber diet. Mm -hmm. That's called processed food. And so what we do is we teach them the difference between real and processed food. And a lot of parents don't know. A lot of parents grew up, you know, after 1980 when processed food really took over the marketplace. And they don't know that breakfast cereal is not food. They think that, you know, um, fruit-flavored yogurt is food. And they don't understand the difference. They don't understand why these things don't work, we explain. And we explain the science behind it. Because if they understand it, then they can partner with you. And then they will actually be able to alter their home environment so as to you know, allow for um, 
the insulin to be reduced and the weight to come down and their metabolic health to improve. But I, not until they understand it. I have to ask two questions about, um, well, one, I guess the first one um, would be there was a, there's a group of researchers, I think they're in Scotland, and what they were talking about was despite, you know, the Scottish lay public, you know, a high prevalence of obesity, high prevalence, increasing prevalence of diabetes. Um, and what they were looking at was some sort of food that they could incorporate into, let's say, a lazy way of correcting a diet, if you like. So they're saying if they're not going to comply with a dietary change, what sort of intervention can they add that would change some sort of cardiac parameter risk? And what they, what they came up with was, I think it was either 15 or 25 mils of olive oil. Right, so that was one question. The second question is Dr. Michael Mosley talks about high-intensity um, interval training or exercise, HIIT training. Yeah, right. What do you see as the relevance of these sorts of approaches long-term, um, given that they're not really correcting the original issue? Like, do you think well, it's just a Band-Aid? Yeah, I, I'm not sure about the olive oil. I mean, certainly olive oil is a good thing because it stimulates, it, it's oleic acid, it stimulates the um, hepatic transcription factor, PPR-alpha. Um, and that actually helps uh, burn energy in the liver better. Hmm. So there might be a value to it, although I have to, I would have to see the data in order to... Um, yeah, I think it's early days. Say yeah. This is true or not true. In addition, um, high-resistance uh, uh, interval training can also help increase mitochondrial biogenesis and increase the um, maximal velocity of the tricarboxylic acid cycle, thereby taking some of that acetyl-CoA that would have gotten turned into liver fat and maybe actually get burned. Mm. There are possible repercussions that would be positive from that kind of um, thinking. You know, the point is uh, that you have to understand the mechanism. You know, so you need, you need three things. You need plausibility, you need mechanism, and you need empiric data. And certainly there's a plausibility argument. There is a mechanism. Now we have to see the empiric data that says this is what's really going on. There's so much more to go into. And you know, I've got to say, this is going to be riveting for me. Um, to learn about these mechanisms that drive not just insulin resistance, but also there's uh, the resistant obesity, why we should be looking deeper into it. And I think more so how we can treat these people to um, live happier, healthier lives by saying goodbye to sugar. <laughs> um, well, I don't know that you need to say goodbye to it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once upon a time, sugar was a treat. Yeah. Now it's a diet staple. Yeah. Once upon a time, sugar was rare, safe and rare, like abortion. <laughs> now it's everywhere, yeah. and that's the problem. Mm. And the reason it's everywhere is twofold. One, we went low-fat, which was a terrible mistake. And number two, the food industry learned that when they add it, you buy more because it's addictive, yeah. which is also a mistake. Mm. So recognizing those two facts and recognizing what that has done to our food supply, our global food supply, not just in America, not just in Australia, but truly around the world. And now there's a diabetes pandemic in countries that aren't even fat, like mm. China, Pakistan, and India. Okay. Understanding how the export of the Western processed diet has led to basically the fall of all of these healthcare systems around the world trying to take care of chronic metabolic disease. This is what we should be focusing on and trying to remediate. Mm. I, th I think one of the saddest examples of what you're talking about there is the Okinawans. Um, you know, a decade, yeah. not even a decade ago, it, they were right. praised. They, it was this hallelujah, holy grail of um, yeah. longevity. And now... They've fallen by the wayside. They've got a massively increasing incidence of um, of diabetes happening because right. the Western diet has gone in there. Has taken over. Yeah. Absolutely. So I can't wait, seriously, Robert, for you to share with our, our audience at the symposium some of these, I'm going to say secrets, but, you know, they're not. But I've got to ask one last they're thing. Not. 
where they're not secrets. No, no, they're not secrets. No. They, but they are not what the food industry wants you to know. Yeah, yeah, blindfold. Yeah, I've got to ask though for our listeners that won't be able to attend the symposium, what sort of resources can you direct them to? to start learning about the different types of obesity and how they can treat their patients? Well, the first place I would send them is a website that's curated by UCSF known as sugarscience.org. This is 8,000 clinical research articles vetted by 12 independent scientists who do not take money Mm. and distilled into five messages for the general public. And there's no policy in it. It's just what you can do and what is the problem. Yeah. And this is something that is, you know, very specifically uh, uh, catered to for the uh, average uh, American and potentially Australian. Yeah. Uh, it is, you know, it, it's it's bringing the science to them. So that's that's the first uh, resource I would uh, uh, offer. Uh, the second is the book I wrote called Fat Chance, which has a lot of this information in it. Um, and we wrote a cookbook to go along with it, although you know the recipes are uniquely American, I'm sure. Uh, but you know, nonetheless, you know, real food. The problem is that, that here in America, 33% of adults don't know how to cook. Mm. They never learned. Mm. And if you don't know how to cook, then you're hostage to the food industry for the rest of your life, which, by the way, that was their plan. Mm. And, you know, so we have to fix that. We have to change that. Um, In terms of understanding the different types of obesity, uh, I would uh, say that, you know, I wrote the um, textbook chapter in Sperling's uh, textbook of pediatric endocrinology, which lays all of this out very uh, completely and nicely. Beautiful. Uh, it's hard to find short articles on, you know, this issue of, you know, parsing obesity because there's so much to know. Yeah. So um, I, the chapter I wrote is, uh, you know, has, has all of this in it. We, I think we might uh, put that, that reference up on our FX Medicine website for our listeners. So it's Sperling's Textbook of Endocrinology, is that right? Oh, pediatric Endocrinology. Pediatric Endocrinology. Pediatric Endocrinology. That'd be a worthwhile um, text. In a, in addition, I don't know, do you get Netflix in Australia? Yeah. Okay, well, there are two movies that you can watch. Mm. Uh, one is called Fed Up. Another is called um, Sugar Coated. Yeah. There's also a third movie that was made in Australia called That Sugar Film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and also, uh, we made a public television special here in the United States called Sweet Revenge. It's available by DVD. Um, it probably doesn't play in, in Australia, but you can certainly uh, buy the uh, DVD. And it is uh, very specifically geared to teaching uh, people about the relationship between food, insulin, and health. Mm. I've got to say, like not being a, a let's say not being a, a total success story, but um, just on my starting journey on my beginnings of getting away from sugar, just decreasing by half the amount of sugar in a coffee. And Absolutely. wow, like it's, yeah. it's, it's exactly like Stephen Fry said, I'm tasting the coffee. Of course, That's what right. it's made me into is a coffee snob, but, <laughs> but, but it's, it's really amazing. Well, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm so proud now that we shop from the outside of the supermarket and rarely do we uh, venture into the inside aisles. And if you've gone into the aisles, you've gone off the way. Yeah, yeah. Just doing these simple things and wow, wow, we. It makes a big difference. Yeah. The last thing I would suggest is that your um, listeners might want to log on to our nonprofits website, yep. which is the Institute for Responsible Nutrition, responsiblefoods.org. We take no money from any food industry concern. And so everything that's on there is completely vetted. And, um, you know, independent, not uh, uh, food industry propaganda. Because it's actually very hard to find information yeah. that is not controlled by the food industry. Yeah. Uh, as this New England Journal debacle has uh, demonstrated. Well, we'll definitely be putting all of these references um, and resources up on the FX Medicine website for our listeners. Professor Robert Lustig, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and, and educating me. Um, in so many areas 
Um, and I'm sure that our listeners have gotten something out of this and I seriously cannot wait. I'm so sorry when I meet you, I'm going to tackle you and I'm going to take all of your time up and suck all everything that's in your brains out. So, so <laughs> forgive me when I, I, uh, I meet you at the uh, symposium next year. It'll be my pleasure. Thanks, Dr. Um, Professor Lustig, forgive me. And this is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The 5th Bioceuticals Research Symposium will be held from the 21st to the 23rd of April 2017 in Sydney. This promises to be another sellout event. For more information, including registration, go to the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au.